please welcome to the stage Dr. Gary Lyman, who will be speaking on biosimilars and oncology clinical pathways, perfect together. This session is supported by an educational grant from Coharis Biosciences and Pfizer, and there will be polling questions for this one. Thank you so much. Uh, obviously, we've uh, dwindled in numbers, but uh, that's to be expected. My job is to make sure you miss your plane uh, this afternoon, and uh, and then you know, hold somebody else responsible. But uh, thanks for joining. Uh, so, as was mentioned, I will be discussing biosimilars and their role in terms of integration into clinical pathways. And uh, I hope to convince you over the next few minutes that this is a good fit and, and it makes a great deal of sense uh, to integrate biosimilars. Uh, but I understand there remain concerns, apprehensions, and some level of uncertainty about what these are and, and the, how they're approved and uh, whether they're really safe to use in clinical practice, uh, whether they're in pathways and guidelines or not. So uh, we'll go forward with this. Uh, I believe I'll, I'm Gary Lyman at the Fred Hutch and University of Washington. Uh, these are my disclosures. And I, in addition to uh, some consulting, I uh, chaired the uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO Working Group on Biosimilars, and I'll refer to that as we go through the presentation. Uh, these are the learning objectives. I was told not to spend any time on this because you've probably seen them. So uh, in, in way of introduction, uh, I don't need to convince you uh, and, and hopefully your colleagues that biological therapies uh, derived from living systems have really revolutionized, I would say, medicine in general, many areas of medicine, but most notably in clinical oncology and in the treatment and care of cancer patients. Uh, with the beneficial effects of biologics, uh, while they're clear from randomized controlled trials, we've talked about uh, a fair amount about trials in this meeting, the economic impact of these uh, medicines uh, has placed an enormous financial burden on patients, families, and society. These are very expensive medicines. You've heard that time and again, and the burden on patients uh, has uh, really uh, climbed uh, precipitously over the last uh, decade to decade and a half. Such uh, what we're calling financial toxicity may limit drug access uh, to these exciting and potentially curative biologic therapies and may result in some patients who could be cured, perhaps stopping treatment early uh, with uh, uh, potentially devastating consequences. Uh, one strategy that's been proposed uh, in legislation uh, by the FDA, supported by uh, the, uh, the, uh, the White House, the President's Cancer Panel, virtually a cr uh, broad spectrum of support for the introduction, uh, development, regulatory approval, and integration of biosimilars into uh, uh, clinical practice. And th this, uh, again, has come with some complexity, uh, and that's what we're going to dive in uh, today. But the goal, primary goal here, is to bring competition and bring down the price of these expensive drugs and as a aftermath, uh, improve access and reduce the financial burden on patients uh, with uh, cancer. So, and, and at the end, we'll talk about the, there are now 23 FDA-approved biosimilars uh, in the U.S. Uh, there are actually many more in Europe, and I'll mention that uh, briefly. Uh, these are based on far more 
preclinical analytic uh, looking at uh, structural and functional characterization uh, using a vast array of analytic tools. Uh, <clears throat> some uh, preclinical data in terms of animal uh, uh, safety and efficacy testing. Uh, and then in humans, more limited data than we're used to seeing with uh, drug approval in the U.S., uh, including uh, the originator biologics. Um, so there may be, uh, well, there al always will be uh, PKPD data, some immunogenicity testing, uh, but not the requirement for multiple large randomized comparative trials uh, that we've grown used to. And this is what I think makes uh, some concerned uh, whether efficacy and safety of these agents is comparable uh, and uh, non-inferior to uh, the originator biologic therapies we've come to know and love over the last uh, 10 to 20 years. So why the need for biosimilars? This should be quite intuitive, both from my comments and from your experience. Uh, that is the cost of medical care in, in the U.S., has for decades now exceeded that of the increase in the gross domestic product. Nowhere is that more evident in the rise in cost of cancer care, not cancer medical care, and even uh, more so uh, the rise in the, the, the cost of uh, cancer medications, cancer drugs, and these uh, the poster child for this are the biologic therapies. So I show on the right-hand side uh, the, uh, the top Medicare spends on drugs. And if you look down this list, seven of these 10 uh, top uh, agents are agents that we use in oncology. Uh, so again, this is a big driver of this increase in the cost of healthcare. Another way to look at it is to look at uh, the expenditures for U.S. medications. And you can see that 30%, nearly a third of uh, the, the expenditures on medical care in the U.S. is from these top five therapy areas, and number one on the list is oncology. Another, uh, one other way to look at this is the price of these drugs and what's happened to them, uh, the price uh, at or shortly after FDA approval. Uh, the data, data out of work from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering looking at the cost of cancer drugs at the date of FDA approval, and uh, you may not see it there, but there is a, a, an orange line that shows the median rise, uh, which now is exceeding $10,000 per month in terms of the cost of, of uh, cancer drugs that are approved by the FDA. And you see the scatter plot. Uh, some of these are far more than, uh, than that median. So biologic therapies, uh, both in the U.S. and globally, uh, the, the spending on these has increased dramatically also over the last uh, uh, 10 years or so. Uh, you can see global biologic sales uh, up through 2017. Uh, in 2018, data has continued on this trend uh, well over $200 billion uh, globally. They continue to outpace uh, overall uh, spending growth in other areas and uh, now have uh, basically reached about 20% of the global market uh, value. Uh, this raises these concerns we'll come back to about whether this is going to limit, complicate patient access to these drugs, which again can be potentially curative or prolong uh, survival, uh, and, or, and or leave them or their families in enormous financial debt. 
Another, uh, one final way to look at this is at the patient level. And this is uh, an interesting graphic that I think says a lot. Uh, and the, uh, the issue is that median household income in the U.S. has remained essentially flat. Some indications may have even gone down in terms of effective purchasing power. Uh, at the same time, and that's shown in the red line, horizontal line, at the same time, the, the median monthly cost of new anti-cancer drugs in the U.S. has risen precipitously since the mid-90s and has long surpassed that of the median monthly household income for uh, of uh, U.S. households. So, uh, again, there's no indication that this trend has uh, uh, slowed very much, and uh, I think we can say without a doubt that this is opposing an enormous challenge for a large proportion of patients with cancer under our care. So what are these biosimilars that we're hoping will help? Obviously, it's not the whole solution. We have lots of structural uh, problems within our healthcare financing uh, situation, but uh, it, it is hoped uh, that the biosimilars will be a piece in the puzzle of solving uh, some of these uh, dilemmas. So the FDA has formally defined a biosimilar uh, as a, uh, a biologic product, like the originator biologic, but one that is highly similar, uh, parenthetically not identical, but highly similar to a U.S. license reference biologic product for which there are no clinically meaningful differences in safety, purity, or potency. Uh, so this is a formal definition, and of course it requires some, uh, uh, some actual implementation. But I think the best way to think of this is comparing these uh, biologic therapies and, and, uh, in general, and biosimilars included, on the right-hand side, illustrated by a monoclonal antibody, to simple small chemical agents uh, that can be synthesized in the laboratory uh, precisely, exactly. Uh, we have generics. Uh, their structure is, extreme, is, is completely well-defined. Um, it can be reproduced, uh, completely characterized. These are generally pretty stable molecules, and uh, with few ex- ex- uh, exceptions that are not immunogenic, genetic. So uh, the... Monoclonal antibodies or biologics in general, on the other hand, are very large, complex uh, agents with, uh, uh, that are, have a high molecular weight. Uh, they're produced in living systems, so again, they can't be replicated exactly uh, due to variability in the biologic processes and the, in the processes used to, uh, to develop them. Uh, they may, many of them are relatively unstable and, and sensitive to external conditions. And again, because these are large proteins, uh, they may be immunogenic. So uh, stark contrast to uh, agents going back a couple of decades that we and, and still use today. So uh, we published a paper in the New England Journal uh, uh, about a year ago uh, to basically try to summarize the evidence around these agents and uh, educate uh, both general practitioners and oncologists on uh, the opportunities and reality of biosimilar medications. The requirements the FDA has established for biosimilarity are fairly simple and succinct. Uh, The biologic product must be highly similar to the reference product 
notwithstanding minor differences in clinically inactive components. At the same time, there can be no clinically meaningful differences between the biologic product, the biosimilar, and the reference product, uh, the originator, in terms of safety, purity, and potency. And the process for getting approval uh, of, an, of a biosimilar uh, it, it, that the FDA follows is one that we consider to be stepwise evidence development, uh, and that's illustrated on the right. So again, the base is where a great deal of the focus goes, uh, and, and we now have well over 60 analytic quality metrics that these agents must go through and demonstrate uh, that they're uh, highly similar to those reflected by the originator in terms of, uh, again, uh, structure and functional characterization. And then there's uh, preclinical data. Again, this is done in, generally in animal systems. And then the clinical data is heavily uh, done around pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic, and immunogenicity. And much of this is often done in healthy volunteers because these are generally individuals who are not immunosuppressed and are probably going to be more sensitive to reflecting some of the potential toxicities of the pharmacokinetic and uh, pharmacodynamic changes that may, uh, may impact on the distribution of these agents. And then, uh, if needed, and, and uh, to some extent, there will be clinical data, uh, often some comparative clinical data between the biosimilar and the originator, uh, but the goal of that is merely to look and say, is there still uncertainty if the biosimilar uh, is not uh, truly highly similar to the originator? And then the FDA has the discretion to require and impose uh, additional clinical trials. And again, we'll come back to this. A little easier to see in this uh, stepwise process, we start with the analytic studies, again, looking at the structure of the biosimilar and its functional uh, characterization. At each step as we go up, the FDA ev evaluates the totality of evidence that comes out of the previous step and determines whether further studies are needed. There's always a need for some animal studies uh, in this process and then early human studies looking at PKPD and immunogenicity. And then, as I said, if residual uncertainty remains, uh, there may be a requirement for additional clinical studies, including comparative randomized trials. But generally, smaller trials, uh, some often phase two studies, not uh, multiple large phase three uh, trials. So there are a few new concepts, or at least uh, not totally new, but uh, ones that I think uh, are unclear to, to many of my colleagues as they talk on this subject around the country. One of these is this concept of extrapolation. Uh, so generally the, the approach here is a company develops a biosimilar, decides on what label, what indication they're going to go for, and, and does both the preclinical and clinical studies necessary to demonstrate high similarity or a biosimilarity uh, to the originator. Uh, and if uh, things go well and the FDA approves it for that indication, uh, they, uh, it can be marketed uh, uh, for that particular uh, disease or, or, or clinical situation. However, many biologic therapies, as you know, have multiple indications, multiple diseases or multiple 
uh, scenarios uh, of a disease, early stage versus advanced stage disease and so forth. So uh, the, uh, the act that established the process for biosimilarity gave the FDA discretion uh, to extrapolate based on the evidence presented for the initial indication and any additional uh, scientific justification for ex- granting extrapolation to other clinical scenarios. And if the FDA is satisfied, again, they have the discretion to grant extrapolation without, again, requiring additional clinical trials to establish uh, the, the, uh, uh, the eff- efficacy and safety of that agent in these other settings. Keep that, compare that to what the originator had to do for each new indication, each new label, a whole new set of data, uh, clinical data had to be uh, submitted uh, to grant that uh, other indication. But for biosimilarity, the the argument being that if you required all that data on each new uh, highly similar agent, uh, the cost of developing those agents will be at least as much, maybe even more than the originator and you wouldn't accomplish the, uh, the one goal, the major goal here, of developing these agents at a lower cost, allowing them to uh, price reduce and compete with the originator. Now, there, is a, there, is a, 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 there are a number of steps, again, an, a company needs to go through to establish uh, the justification for extrapolation to the FDA. And it is important to note that extrapolation is not an automatic thing. And you will see already biosimilars on the marketplace that were not granted extrapolation for other uh, situations. So, again, the biosimilar has to be given approval for its in initial submitted uh, application and indication. In addition, however, they may be granted extrapolation if they can demonstrate that the mechanism of action for the other indications uh, is essentially the same. Uh, Their binding molecular signaling is essentially the same. Their location, the receptors for these different indications, the same. And then uh, with PKPD data, they can demonstrate that uh, and support that the mechanism of action of the agent for these other indications is, is essentially the same. Now, in addition to that, however, there are, there are possibilities that a different indication in a different population would reflect or express different toxicities, or it, 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 patients may have different set of comorbidities uh, or concomitant medications. So if the, if the situation, if the patient population uh, or, or the conditions of use are sufficiently different than the original indication for which they achieved approval, the FDA may say, we won't grant you that extrapolation until you provide us with more data. So again, uh, they have the discretion, but it's not an automatic thing. The other major issue here, and we've already alluded to this, is biologic agents, including biosimilars and originator or reference products, uh, are uh, sources of variability. Uh, These uh, drugs, these agents, uh, because they're produced in living systems, they undergo fermentation conditions, uh, different raw materials, uh, uh, protein purification methods may differ. Uh, There's all sorts of steps that kind of illustrated uh, in the uh, in in this diagram on the on the right hand side here, 
where variability can creep into the process. So even though you start off with the same vector, you start off with the same cell system, uh, you try to do things exactly the same, uh, th there may well be differences in, uh, again, structure or even functional uh, characterization of the biosimilar in the end. So all this has to be monitored. It has to be demonstrated by uh, the, the company that the agent is, is, again, highly similar within the boundaries that the FDA has established. And then over time, uh, and we'll get, get into this more, there is the potential uh, for drift occurring. Uh, drift being that because of changes in manufacturing, uh, the, the, the components that go into that process, uh, the geography, there may be some changes, unavoidably going to be some changes in these molecules over time. Uh, and if that, those changes affect critical areas in the molecule, in this complex protein, uh, there could be a, a, a change in efficacy or a change in, in safety. So there's a requirement not only up front to demonstrate high similarity to the, to the reference product, but then over time, anytime you change manufacturing facilities or processes, uh, you need to redemonstrate uh, to the FDA that critical functionality, the high similarity of these agents has not um, you know, changed in a clinically meaningful way. I would emphasize, however, and again, I'm going to illustrate this in a second, that both the original biologic therapy and the biosimilar are subject to this drift. In other words, they're both fundamentally complex proteins, large molecular weight proteins, uh, with complicated uh, manufacturing processes that you saw, and they're both subject to this drift and therefore both requiring continuous monitoring uh, for efficacy and safety. So I'm going to illustrate this with a, a, a project uh, th that I've been involved with the last couple of years uh, that's, uh, I think, both uh, concerning but uh, hopefully eye-opening and a, uh, you know, a, a warn-up uh, uh, a, a warning flag to us that we really need to monitor uh, the, uh, these agents over time. So a, one of the biosimilars that the FDA has approved uh, undertook uh, all the necessary processes, analytic characterization of structure and function, PKPD studies, and then did comparative clinical trial to, uh, between the originator, this is for uh, uh, the originator, Herceptin, and the biosimilar trastuzumab uh, that they were trying to get FDA approval for. And in that trial, uh, uh, they found, to their surprise and somewhat shock, that the biosimilar results seemed to be superior to the originator. And, you know, they, they're, they're puzzled. All the PKPD studies were... Uh, showed high similarity. It seemed to be the same molecule uh, to uh, the, the originator, uh, but when they ran the clinical trial, uh, there seemed to be some superiority. And in fact, the FDA will not grant biosimilarity status to an agent that is demonstrated to be superior to the originator, uh, uh, something you might call bio-better. Uh, it has to be within these boundaries, and they're kind of illustrated uh, here uh, for this one performance characteristic. Again, there are 67 now 
currently in the FDA portfolio uh, of quality metrics that these agents go through. Uh, but for each of these, they should fall within these boundaries to demonstrate comparability for that metric. So this one uh, here is for ADCC, uh, uh, for uh, Herceptin or Trastuzumab. So it's antibody-dependent uh, cell-mediated cytotoxicity. Some uh, still believe that this is a critical action of uh, Trastuzumab in terms of its anti-cancer activity. Uh, but when they went back and uh, said, we've got to figure out why the biosimilar is doing better than the originator, uh, they looked at all these characteristics. But they, what they did is they obtained multiple batches of the originator over time. And what you can see illustrated here uh, is, uh, if I can go back here, uh, is that there was a drift. Uh, and this is com the dots here uh, on this graph uh, represent uh, uh, European version of Herceptin, U.S. version of Herceptin, and then Herceptin used in the clinical trial. So there are different colors here, but they all show the same thing, that in uh, recent batches, uh, there was a drift where the ADCC performance fell below FDA criteria for that metric. So the question is, does that matter? Uh, how important is it? Uh, and does it explain why there seemed to be some advantage to the biosimilar over the originator? So they continued their trial, and we just published in European Journal of Cancer the three-year data. We now have four-year data on this, which has basically shown the same thing, uh, that patients who received the, the biosimilar, uh, which is uh, uh, shown, uh, it's a little hard to see, but it's at the top curve here, uh, 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 it's the blue curve, uh, so it uh, overlaps with uh, this red curve, which represents the originator that had not drifted. So patients in the trial who received the, either the biosimilar or the originator, Herceptin, but undrifted versions, uh, uh, did the best. But patients who received one or more batches of the drifted product uh, seem to have a, a greater rate of recurrence and a greater mortality rate. And these reach statistical significance. But I would caution you that this is retrospective subgroup analyses. That we don't have data on all these patients. And this was not an a priori uh, hypothesis that was raised. But it does, I think, bring to mind the fact that both the originator and the biosimilar can drift over time if we're not particularly cautious in monitoring these. And this study will go out for uh, at least for five years, and we'll see if that, uh, those differences uh, remain. Now, again, somewhat reassuring is that in the most recent uh, batches, uh, there seems to be a recovery of ADCC performance in the originator. Uh, so somebody figured it out and got things on top of it. But uh, I, again, this is a message that Drift is, up until now, has been a hypothetical concern, uh, largely for the biosimilar products. Uh, but it's, number one, uh, a thing that can happen to both originator and biosimilars. And number two, it's no longer hypothetical. It can occur, and it has occurred in time. And if that drift is, involves critical functionality of the molecule, it may impact on patients going forward. 
So finally, this issue of immunogenicity, of course, it's a concern of all biologics. Again, these are large, complex proteins. Uh, if it, is, it involves a neutralizing antibody uh, or involves a critical portion of the molecule, of course, there can be loss of efficacy. And of course, there's always this uh, concern or possibility of an allergic response, sometimes severe anaphylaxis. So uh, immunogenicity is something that's tested at the very beginning and needs to be monitored uh, throughout changes in the development and uh, implementation of biosimilars. So the last thing, and this is, uh, this is a concept which I think is completely foreign until recently, and that's interchangeability and substitution. And uh, the, uh, the legislation that established uh, the, the Biologic and bio, Biosimilars Price Protection and Innovation uh, Act said uh, the FDA had the authority to establish a, a higher level of approval beyond biosimilarity, and that is interchangeable biosimilarity. And in turn, CMS uh, could implement uh, reimbursement or uh, 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 rules for uh, compensation that reflected that. Well, to date, there have been no, uh, uh, no products that have been requested to obtain interchangeability status. So no companies come forward and requested interchangeability. Uh, uh, so biosimilars have to first establish biosimilarity, but then they would need to re provide additional clinical data uh, and uh, that's just not been done. However, if a company comes forward with data and the FDA says, you're not only a, a, an approved biosimilar, but you're an interchangeable biosimilar, the rules state that they could grant substitution with that interchangeable biosimilar without the intervention of the provider. In other words, you could, you could order uh, the originator or a different biosimilar and an interchangeable biosimilar could be uh, substituted. Now, again, caution uh, that, again, none have been so submitted or approved. Uh, and number two, that state substitution laws, and now well over 35 states have uh, passed laws that would presumably preempt this, uh, that would prevent this automatic substitution without notification. Can't prevent the automatic substitution necessarily if it's an interchangeable. Uh, but there'd be a requirement uh, for the provider uh, to be notified. So that's, that's potential in the future, but I think it's important to understand. Now, the nomenclature here has confused a lot of folks, uh, and I think I just quickly uh, review.